You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. Well, the book of Revelation is such a wonderful book, in part because it is the only book that comes with its own divine outline. In chapter 1, verse 19, Uh, Jesus tells John to write the things which he had seen, the events of Revelation chapter 1, the things which are, he would say to John, that would be the uh, events of Revelation 2 and 3, the letters of Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and the things which will take place after this or after these things. And when you get to chapter 4, Verse 1, you see that phrase, after these things, repeated twice to indicate that you've moved into the third section of the book of Revelation. And of course, in chapter 4 and 5, you see the throne room of God and the taking of the scroll. There's this scroll that is found in the hand of God. The question is asked, who is worthy to take the scroll And to loosen the seals that are upon the scroll. No one is found worthy initially. And John begins to weep. An angel comforts him by directing his attention to Jesus. Who he sees or hears first as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he sees him, he sees him as the lamb. Slain from the foundations of of the earth. And so the dual picture of who Jesus is, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. And so that's the heavenly perspective. And Jesus then begins to un uh, roll and loosen this scroll. Each one of these seals, Jesus breaks off. And when he gets to the seventh seal, It is revealed that the seventh seal actually has within it seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet, there is actually seven bowl judgments from God. And every single one of these seals and every one of these trumpets and every one of these bowls signifies some kind of cataclysmic event that will be unleashed here on planet Earth during the last days during what is called the day of the Lord. Now, as you're moving through the book of Genesis and sort of cranking off uh, each one of these seals and moving through the different trumpets, you get to the seventh trumpet at the end of Revelation chapter 11. And the text takes a strange turn or an unexpected turn in Revelation 12, 13, and 14. You see, as you're going through the seals and then the trumpets and then on into the uh, bowls, there's a sequential unveiling that is taking place. But when you get to chapter 12, 13, and 14, uh, things appear rather different. And what seems to be happening in these three chapters is, that you're receiving a heavenly perspective or heavenly vision, a spiritual vision, so to speak, of the events that are taking place on earth. 
In chapter 12, you're seeing the heavenly perspective of Israel and of the revealing of the Christ and of the role of the devil and uh, Michael the angel. In Revelation chapter 13, you see the Antichrist and the false prophet. Of course, these characters are not seen on earth as these gruesome, ugly beasts with, uh, you know, speaking venomous words and coming from the sea. But from God's perspective, this is what God is seeing. And I think in one sense, that ought to speak to our hearts concerning the reality of sin and the devil and the flesh. And here he sees the Antichrist and his false prophet. And from God's vantage point, what he is seeing is a beast. Now in chapter 14, we're still in that heavenly perspective from God. After this chapter, we're going to, in one sense, come back down to planet Earth and see things once again from the perspective of mankind. We've already gone through the seven seals. We are in the seventh seal, which contains the seven trumpets. And we've already passed through the seven trumpets. But in the seventh trumpet, there are seven bulls. And we have not yet touched on the seven bulls, which really truly contain the wrath of God. Up until now, there's been disaster. Up until now, there has been difficulty. Up until now, there has been plenty of cataclysmic events that have occurred. But the bulls indicate to us and detail for us the actual anger and wrath of God poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. And so today we have an opportunity to look into Revelation chapter 14. And like I said, we've seen from a, from God's perspective, Israel, the Christ, uh, we've seen the devil, we've seen the angelic beings, we've seen the uh, Antichrist, and we've seen the false prophet. But now in chapter 14, we turn our attention once again to the 144,000. We saw them back in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, these were Israelites who were sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads. And immediately following their mention, you see this gigantic multitude, innumerable multitude of people in heaven who had given their lives to the Lord, presumably, during the early uh, stages of the Great Tribulation. And so what appears to have taken place is that these 144,000 Jewish people are super witnesses uh, who are being used by God in a radical way to lead people to Christ during at least a portion of these last days. And so again, this is the perspective of God, the heavenly view of things. And it says in verse one, he says, then I looked, of course, John, our author, and he says, behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And so again, our attention is drawn back to the 144,000. Uh, they are standing with the Lamb, that's with Jesus, on Mount Zion. Now, at this point in the book, I, I think what we're seeing here, my best interpretation of this would be that Mount Zion, he's speaking of the spiritual, real Mount Zion, not the earthly Jerusalem, but the 
heavenly Jerusalem at this point. John has a vision of these 144,000 with the Lord, with the Lamb. They're sealed. The, it says in his father's name was written on their foreheads. And speaking of the identification that God places upon them. And I, I should just mention for a moment that I think that this is ever important in being useful to the Lord and being effective for him. What we're going to see is that these 144,000 were incredibly effective for God. And I want to give you actually five things that made these characters incredibly effective. And I think the first one is their identification with God. And the fact that they, they found their identity wrapped up within God himself. He placed his name upon their foreheads. And I found that this is so important for people who want to serve God is that they would get their identity, their fulfillment, their validation from God and from God alone. It is so difficult to work with someone who needs to be validated in what they are doing for God. Uh, you know, when dealing with a person like this, who has this kind of insecurity, this kind of ego, you're always up against a major problem. I mean, for one, just humans trying to do the work of God, it's difficult enough. But then you throw into it this false ulterior motive and everything is polluted. You know, everything has a touch of awkwardness and, uh, you know, poor motivations. And so these characters, you know, they just received the name of God upon their foreheads. And I found that people that have this kind of attitude about their lives, they are so effective in ministry. If a turnout is small to something that they've planned, uh, they're not thrown for a loop. They don't panic. Sure, they might think about how to do things better next time. They might ask the questions like, was that a good uh, use of our time? Did we plan it well? Were we as faithful as possible? They may ask questions like that, but they aren't thrown for a loop and so utterly discouraged because their identity is not wrapped up in that success. And I know for me, this has been something that over the years, the Lord has had to teach me time and time again. And just when I think I've gotten over that success bug and the worship of success, uh, the Lord will allow something into my life that tests me a little bit further. And I'll realize how quickly and how easily I've slipped back into a thing where my identity is not wrapped up in my heavenly father, but is wrapped up in something else. And, and, and how often the name written on my forehead, so to speak, would not be that of my heavenly father. That would not be the number one identity I had been placing upon myself. It would be more, uh, you know, maybe the title, pastor, or maybe a word like success or effectiveness or fruitfulness. Uh, but these are not the things that we are to find our identity from. The name upon these very fruitful and effective 144,000 was the name of the Heavenly Father. Just absolutely wonderful. Now, as you move on in the text, it says that John says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many 
waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, this is beautiful to me in one sense, just because I'm a music person. I love music. I love discovering new music. I love discovering a new band that I enjoy. I have a deep love for music and a soft spot for music inside my heart. And just reading lines like this all throughout the book of Revelation of the sounds of heaven, what it'll be like in heaven, the sound of heaven. And here we see that there will be this song and the the singing will be like the roar of many waters, like the sound of thunder And the voice will be like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I mean, it seems to me as if John was hard-pressed to find a way to describe what he was hearing. I, I don't think it was something that his mind was able to process. And so, you know, just the reality that in heaven all of our senses are going to be opened up to, I think in many ways, just a surreal experience. Uh, you know, the the sights and the smells and the sounds, I think, are going to absolutely, uh, you know, blow our minds. And I think there will be great joy. Just this morning, I was sitting at a coffee shop in town, and I was drinking an Americano and reading my Bible. I was just personally near the end of the book of Revelation, and I was reading about the nations going in and out of the new Jerusalem in heaven. And I was thinking of that, thinking of the, of nations and and thinking about all of the good things that one can find in culture, you know, redeemable things, you know, things that we enjoy. And we enjoy music to a degree. We enjoy art to a degree. We, we enjoy entertainment to a degree. And of course, all of these things here on this earth can be taken and corrupted and twisted, right? For evil purposes, to stumble people, to bind them and to blind them. But in heaven, that culture will be used in such a wonderful way. And I I was just sitting there this morning thinking in that coffee shop about, you know, just hoping in my heart, uh, you know, for just a great experience, just eating and drinking in heaven. What the tastes will be like in eternity. And here this song is sung. It's an incredible song. And it's sung by the 144,000. And no one else is able to learn this song. It's simply for them to sing. Uh, and uh, they sing it before the four living creatures and before the elders. And the second thing I wanted you to see about these 144,000. Number one, they were effective in that they received their identity from God. Number two, these men were worshipers. They were worshipers. They were willing to sing to God. Their hearts were devoted to God. And and again, this is one of those areas that when a person doesn't have this inside of their lives, it is so hard to work with them in ministry. When Jesus isn't their passion and worship isn't a part of their regular practice, 
And I'm not just talking about the simple sing, singing of songs. I think that the singing of songs from this group of 144,000 was indicative of the kind of worshipful heart that they had towards God. And so, number two, we want to have this heart before God, just absolutely in love with him, worshiping him, adoring him, bowing down to him, having personal times of quiet and rest and, uh, you know, receiving his word, his heart, his vision. To be this kind of person is, is so incredibly important. I find that I have so much less to offer to uh, the church that I'm serving, to my family, to my friendships, to men that I'm trying to pour into and raise up. I have so much less to offer when my worship is at a minimal uh, when my worship is is not strong, when my worship is weak and faint, but when my worship is strong and my prayer life is strong and, and I have devotion within my heart, I have so much more to offer to the people in my life and to the church that I belong to. And so, uh, number two, these characters, these 144,000, they were absolute worshipers singing songs unto the Lord. Now, verse... For it goes on and it says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. All right, another thing that we see about these men is that they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, it tells us there in verse 4. Now, of course, we understand that there is nothing extra spiritual about uh, being single. Of course, we know that Jesus was not married. We know that Paul the Apostle uh, at least was not married as a Christian, as a believer. Perhaps he had been married at uh, an earlier stage in his life. Uh, but we know that during his uh, ministry as a believer, he was not a married man. We know, of course, of the words of Jesus when he spoke to his disciples and said that some are made eunuchs by man and some have chosen to make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Now, Paul echoed this statement to the Corinthian church when he urged them and said, I, I wish that many would remain as I am, that they would adopt that life of singleness. But at the same time, Paul the Apostle also declared to Timothy that in the last days false doctrine would abound. And one of the things that would abound in that false doctrine is forbidding people to marry. And that, of course, includes clergy, people that are being used by God uh, in a pastoral, ministerial kind of sense. And there should not be the uh, holding out and saying, you should not be married. That, that's not a spiritual position. However, what you have with these men is a life of celibacy. But more importantly than that, it's that they had not defiled themselves with women. In other words, they had not defiled themselves sexually. So number three, what you see with these men is that they, number one, they get their identity from God. Number two, they are worshipers of God. But number three, they are sexually pure for God. And this, of course, is the heart and the desire of God. It says in 1 Thessalonians that this is the will of God for us, our sanctification, that we might abstain from sexual immorality. If you want to be used by God, get a hold of your body. 
figure out how to uh, abstain from sexual immorality, live a life of purity and godliness and consecration. Do not compromise in this area. I don't care how worshipful you are. I don't care how much you think you're finding your identity from God and from God alone. If you have sexual impurity, ongoing, constant, unrepented in your life in some manner or form, uh, you are going to be severely restricted in your usefulness unto God. You might appear fruitful to others, but God will know the lie that you are living. This is very important. And so, uh, you know, these 144,000, they lived a life of sexual purity. They knew how to possess their own vessels in honor, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then it goes on in verse 4, and it says that it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were simply disciples, just followers. Followers, 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 following Jesus. Uh, they, they worshiped the Lord. They received their identity from him. They were sexually pure, but they simply followed God. And just like the disciples who followed Jesus here on earth, these 144,000 followed Jesus wherever he goes. They looked to his leadership, and it says that these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God, and the lamb and in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless they they were truthful people as well there was a consistency they had put away lying there was no uh, duplicity within them there was a consistent kind of life jesus said that the father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth and to have consistency in our lives as we worship is so important to our worship. Now, we've taken quite a bit of time to look at these first five verses and to meditate upon the 144,000. So let's continue on in the chapter. And we get to these three angels in verse six. He says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead so angel number one and this angel flew with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people and he said with a loud voice fear god and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water and so you have this angel who flies through the heavens. Uh, many people have tried to attach this angel to something or someone. Uh, I read a commentary from the 18th century where one commentator thought that the angel was the British and Foreign Bible Society. Uh, in the 17th century, there was someone who wondered if this angel was John Wycliffe. And so, uh, you know, people have wondered from time and time, from time to time, who this angel is. But I believe it will be a literal angel who will fly and proclaim the gospel message to the world during these last days. This is the grace of God. Another angel, second angel, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all nations drink of the wine of the passion 
of her sexual immorality. Now, Babylon, of course, in the Old Testament was the place where false religion and materialistic greed were born. And we're going to visit this Babylon in, in just a couple of chapters, and we're going to see this materialistic greed and this false religion typified in Revelation 17 and 18 and this character called Babylon, but this angel proclaims its defeat. And in verse 9, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Two things. You see the anger of God, the wrath of God. This is right. I'm so glad that God is angry with the results of and with sin itself. Secondly, we also see that this, this eternal wrath and judgment lasts forever and ever. Uh, not an annihilationist position. Uh, their souls don't just simply fade into oblivion and are destroyed forever without existence. They last forever and ever. And he says in verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. He cries out for us to live an enduring kind of life, to have ability to endure and to run the race that is set before us. And this is always a timely encouragement for God's people. We just need endurance. And I encourage you, run the race with endurance, friend. Wherever you're at, whatever station of life you're in, endure in what God has for you. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And so this voice from heaven cries out and speaks about the coming rest. And of course, this is something that God's servants radically need. He says, you know, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. There's a day where we will be able to rest. There's a day where we will be able to stop and cease our efforts. Now, that day is not now. This is a day of work. This is a day of labor. This is a day of heartache and pain and difficulty. But a day is coming where we will be able to rest from our efforts. And I love what the Spirit says. He says, for their deeds follow them. In other words, all of the promises of God from the beginning of the Bible until the end, that he will reward us for the faithful effort that we show here on earth and that our works will be judged and some of them will be as, as wood and hay and stubble burned and consumed in the fire to be removed forever. But some of our works will be like gold and silver and precious stones. That promise from God is real and true. And uh, 
Heaven is not the reward, but parts of heaven will be a reward to us. And so just a wonderful reality. Their deeds will follow them. Be a rewarded person. Amen. Well, God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.